0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'll be your moderator today. Joining me is Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI and perhaps more notably, the former acting director of the FBI. During his career, Mr. McCabe played a role in some of the most important events in recent U.S. history. He investigated organized Russian crime, pursued those responsible for the attacks on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi, was involved in the manhunt for the Boston Marathon bombers, and was put in charge of coming up with mutual interrogation techniques for the FBI and the CIA after the abuses were discovered in Guantanamo. But he may not have become a household name that we all know had it not been for a series of unprecedented actions that led him to take the reins of the FBI after the president fired director James Comey in May 2017, a move the president himself has said was linked to the ongoing investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. And so as acting director, Mr. McCabe opened investigations of the president of the United States, including whether the president obstructed justice and whether the president was an asset of the Russian government. Mr. McCabe was fired in March last year, just 26 hours before he was to retire. Cited as justification for that is a report from the Justice Department Inspector General who said that Mr. McCabe lied to investigators, including three times under oath. Mr. McCabe has a different explanation for what happened, and I'm sure we'll get into it. In his new book, The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump, he recounts the highs and lows of working in an independent governmental agency in an age where everything is politicized. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club, Mr. McCabe. Thank you. to start with the major news of the day, which is sure. that Paul Manafort, the former campaign chairman for Trump, was sentenced today to an additional sentence that will put him in jail for up to about 7.5 years. He was also charged with federal crimes in New York, which means the president can't pardon him if he's convicted of state crimes. What do you make of this?
1: Well, I think Judge Jackson did what most followers and observers of Judge Jackson expected her to do. She stayed focused on the conduct that was before her. She didn't really get distracted by trying to address what had happened in the Virginia courts the week before. Um, and she delivered a sentence that is actually kind of right in the middle of the middle of the range that, that uh, offenders of those sorts of white-collar crimes typically receive. So I think her sentence was... Um, certainly reasonable based on the facts before her um, and uh, and a professional and reasonable result. Um, The developments in New York are interesting. You know, it really kind of um, drives home the seriousness of a federal criminal investigation. Um, Federal investigations, those done by the FBI start in one place. They start when we have articulable facts that form the basis of a belief that a crime has been committed or a threat to national security exists but once that investigation is off and running and you're collecting evidence and information and talking to people you frequently become aware of all kinds of other activity that you might not have known about at the beginning i think some of that invest solid investigative work is really coming back to haunt Um, Mr. Manafort now in a new jurisdiction, this one, this time, of course, in New York.
0: Right. I mean, your book does a really good job of explaining that sort of investigative process of the FBI going all the way back to your first investigations. Is there a point at which you decided in your career, man, I have to put this in a book?
1: (laughs) Yeah. March 18th, sorry. (laughs) FBI agents love to tell stories. Right, We have these incredible experiences in the course of our work. And so when you get a bunch of agents uh, sit around the table with beverages of un, unknown uh, types, um, you know we tell stories about the experiences we've had. I think a lot of people in the FBI think at some point, God, I should write these things down or it would be a fun thing to do after I retire. I didn't spend much time thinking about that. I didn't really have time to when I was still working. Um, certainly the experiences I went through in the last... Few months in the way I left the bureau, um, I felt very strongly about a couple of things, a couple of messages that I felt like the American people needed to hear, not just about my situation but about the FBI itself, about who we are, what kind of people are drawn to this work, how we actually do the work, so the nuts and bolts of the authorities that we that we uh, operate under, and the sorts of techniques that we use in different investigations. And how that work is done in an independent way. It's not. It's based on those legal authorities. It's not based on politics or preference or we like this person or don't like that person. It's based on the facts that we have before us and how those facts compare to the authorities that we operate under. So that was really the story I felt like I needed to tell
0: so let 's start with the the beginning of the end, really for sure. you. Um, I think we all know now how Director Comey found out he was fired from a news report. How did you find out that he had been fired?
1: So it was a Tuesday, the Tuesday in May. Um, it was the end of the day, and I had convened, as I did every day, that what we call a wrap-up meeting. So my uh, leadership team would get together in my conference room, and we'd kind of talk about the events of the day, progress on different issues, that sort of thing. So I had done that on May 9th, the day Director Comey had traveled to Los Angeles. I was the acting director for that day. Um, shortly after we began the meeting, one of my staff came into the room and told me that the Attorney General needed to speak to me. I assumed he was on the phone. I left the room, said, "What line is he on?" And they said, "Oh no, no, he wants to see you in person." which I thought that is a bad sign <laughs> it's not, not, it did not happen often, certainly not at you know five thirty in the afternoon. Uh, so I walked across the street and I met with the Attorney General after a brief um, after waiting for him for a minute or two. I walked into his office which is an uh, extraordinary, beautiful office in the uh, Robert F. Kennedy Department of Justice building in D.C., which is right across the street from FBI headquarters. Um, I walked into the attorney general's office. He was there. Um, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, was there, and uh, a gentleman who worked for Rod was also in the room. There were all three standing when I walked in and all wearing their coats, which, investigative clue. <laughs> That is not a good sign for any hastily convened meeting. Uh, so as I walked in, um, the attorney general looked at me and said, I don't know if you've heard, but we've had to fire the director of the FBI. That's how I learned.
0: And what happened after that?
1: I said, I have not heard that. <laughs> but thank you for telling me. Um Good to know. Yeah, good to know. Uh, It was totally disorienting. You know, it's one of those moments, I I try to describe it in the book, where you are confronted with facts that you know will inexorably shift your reality from that point forward. Um, I had a million questions. I was surprised and shocked, although maybe I shouldn't have been. Um, But I felt in the moment, you know, you go back on your... On your training, on your experience, having been confronted with kind of shocking you know, revelations many times in the past, you try to um, you try not to react strongly in the moment. You try to be nonjudgmental. You just listen to the things that you're being told, and, and that's how I responded. Um, I let him. He said, "We need you to run the FBI for some period of time." Uh, he was very clear to point out that they would likely have they were considering bringing in an interim director to serve until a permanent director had been confirmed. So I knew that my time in the chair would be very, I thought it could be very brief. Um, And I told him that I would, I would do whatever was necessary to keep the organization moving forward.
0: How long did you think you would serve as um, interim director or acting director?
1: Had no idea. I literally thought it could happen at any moment. Um, And I joked in the book that my, for that first week, every night when I would come home, my daughter would say, did you get fired today? (laughs) Not today. Not today. Um, Yeah, I really didn't know. Um, I knew that we had some work to do. I felt very strongly about trying to take some steps to ensure that the Russia investigation, which was the thing that had been consuming a lot of our attention for months, was on very solid ground. Um, so that depending on who came in behind me, if they wanted to end the investigation or close it, they would have to do so in a way that established a transparent record of how and why that decision had been made.
0: I like that. So you prepared your family by joking about whether or not you get fired every day and you prepared the FBI for putting in place these investigations that would be hard to undo.
1: That's right. That's right. We wanted to kind of make sure that Whatever steps we thought needed to be taken, we wanted to take those now and do it in a documented and clear way so that for time immemorial, the world would know how we thought about this case and what we thought should happen next in our professional opinion.
0: Tell us about the first time you met the president.
1: So the first time I met the president was later that same night. I got back to my office. Um, It was odd. They they told me as I left the department um, not to tell anyone. That the director had been fired, uh, So I thought, okay. Um,
0: so they were supposed th- to find out about it on. CNN? I'm not sure. I'm
1: not sure. Like, or an email, or that's in fact how it happened. Uh, of course, that's how everything happens. But um, as I left, they said, "Don't say anything." You know, I said, "I, I, I should probably send some sort of a message out to the workforce," um, and they said, "Don't, don't do that. Uh, we want to check and see how the White House wants to handle it, and don't do anything. Don't tell anyone until you hear from us." So I walked across the street with my security, the uh, gentleman who was, uh, uh, assisted me with security, and he was like, So what's going on? It's <laughs> <was> like,
0: Nothing. <laughs> Let's get back to work. <laughs> Just saying hi.
1: Yeah, it was, it was very awkward. Of course, by the time I got back, it was already on the news and everyone knew. Um, so we were kind of in uh, crisis management mode at that point. Um, and then I got the message that the president, wanted to speak to me in the Oval Office. So I traveled down to the White House and saw him for the first time. I had not met him before.
0: And what was that like?
1: <laughs> uh, it was interesting. It was um, strange, troubling, exciting, all those things at the same time.
0: What were you expecting him to say to you?
1: <sighs> I didn't know. You know not, certainly not what he actually said. Um, I thought it was probably just a, you know, kind of meet and greet sort of thing. Ten seconds, I'd be in and out, and and that would be it. I, w- I didn't really have high expectations uh, for the encounter. You know, it's the Oval Office. I'm a career government servant. Um, I had never been in the Oval Office before. And so it's a, it's an experience that really has an impact on you. And it's it's an awe-inspiring place. You think a lot about the history that's taken place uh within those walls. And so those are the sorts of things I was thinking as I stepped inside. Um, the president stood up from behind his desk and came around and shook my hand and began talking nonstop. It's, a, it's, a, it's an overwhelming experience trying to talk to the president face-to-face. It's, he's, he just goes. And you don't really have an opportunity. He doesn't really ask you anything. I mean, he eventually gets around to that, but not right away and he just kind of jumps from one topic to another and he says things that are almost like he's just seeking your agreement with the things that he's saying much of which is completely false so
0: the the part about that story that i really liked is you become fascinated with staring at his desk oh, during yeah. it yeah. which I, I i just imagine you tuning out the The president talking about his election and just yeah. staring at this it's, historic desk. He, you know, he sits behind it, kind
1: of on the edge of his chair, and he's a big man. He leans across and has his hands kind of, kind of coming at you, so you're, you know, it's very. There's not really any way to look away, but then you realize the uh, the desk is is incredible. It is the resolute desk. So it's a desk that was. Um, there was a British ship that was recovered by the Americans and returned to uh, the Brits, and then they took the timbers from the ship and created this beautifully, like, hand-carved desk, and it has all this incredible detail on it. And you, you know the history of it. You know, you've seen all the pictures of presidents sitting behind it. So I become totally distracted by the desk, and I'm just like, I just want to like touch it, you know. But so at some point, I thought, I think like. Pay attention. Stop looking at the desk. <laughs> the president is just talking and talking. So.
0: And you have a number of incidents in the book when you meet the president. And, and most of the encounters seem to be very similar, except perhaps increasingly yeah. more um, insulting.
1: That's a good way to describe it. Um, he he in, immediately on our first meeting um, began speaking about he... Um, how great it was that he had fired the director. People were so happy about it. Didn't I think so? People from the FBI were thrilled. They really didn't like him. Isn't that right? And I was like, that's not what I'm seeing. Um, And I tried to kind of make it clear to him that I did not see things that way, but I was also at the same time trying to navigate that situation carefully uh, with respect and without provoking, you know, a, You know, an argument with the president, which I thought would be um, not productive, certainly in the tenuous position I was in. Um, But then he said, uh, he said to me, after telling me how happy FBI people were, he said, I I understand you were part of the resistance.
0: And what did you take that to mean?
1: I had no idea what he meant. There isn't such a thing that I'm aware of.
0: There is in San Francisco. Well, that's a different resistance. (laughs) Yeah. That's very different. <clears throat> but it wasn't, it wasn't that resistance. There was not we a resistance about.
1: in the FBI that I'm aware of. Um, he's, and I, I told him I wasn't following him. And he said, I, I heard that you were one of the people who didn't approve of director Comey and you didn't agree with him and the decisions that he'd made. And you know, and I said, no, sir, that's not accurate. I worked very closely with director Comey and I was a part of all of those decisions. I understand that people see them differently and disagree about how we handled some of the things that we did. But you know, I, I was a part of that and he was, um, just kind of looked at me like dumbfounded. Like it was very clear to me that that was my opportunity and he didn't like the way that I'd handled it.
0: So fast forward to um, your looming retirement date. Yes. 26 hours before you, you were on paid leave, mm-hmm. you get fired. Yes. Um, how did you find out about that change in your employment status?
1: I learned from the news as we learn all important communications nowadays. I was, my family uh, was home with my wife and my two children and um, we knew that some sort of decision was going to be coming from the department. Um, we had heard that they had convened reporters to stay at the department. As the night went on and on, the reporters kept getting notice, like, stay another few hours, stay another few hours. It was a uh, Friday night, and so at around 10 o'clock on Friday night, um, they made their press announcement to the media. I later learned, they also uh, emailed, I guess, the same statement to me, but my first awareness of it was in watching the news.
0: And uh, there are a lot of questions from the audience, from people who want to know if you're going to get your full retirement benefits.
1: I have that same question. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the answer is, We are absolutely going to fight for that. Um, I am in the kind of final stages of preparing a civil suit that we intend to file in the next few weeks that will challenge um, really all of the circumstances around my dismissal. The process, the unprecedented, um, truncated, unfair process that led to my dismissal, the misrepresentations contained within the inspector general's report, the absolutely false conclusions that they came to, um, and the fact that it was all done in this, uh, sprint to fire me before I could turn 50, which is exactly what the president himself had been demanding publicly for months. Um, so yes, we will challenge all of that.
0: So one of the reasons that was cited or the reason that was cited for your dismissal is this inspector general report from the inspector general who is an Obama appointee who says you lied during the investigation four times, including three times under oath. Now, one of your explanations for this was being confused by some of the questions, if I can paraphrase it, mm-hmm. but you were, you were in charge of ter- interrogation techniques. Can you see why it strains credibility to say that you were confused by the questions? Um, I can,
1: you know, I can't because I endured that situation. And so I know the facts and the circumstances around it in a way that the rest of the public does not know. Um, And I would love to be able to go through all that in great detail with you. Uh, I'm afraid that one of my lawyers will (laughs) descend from the roof like a ninja and spirit me out of here before I can say something else that they then have to uh, have to deal with. Um, I'll just say that it it comes down to essentially two interactions, Um, one with some FBI agents who are investigating a a matter that I asked them to investigate uh, and there was a misunderstanding that came from that meeting. They provided me with a draft science sworn statement I knew was inaccurate. I never signed it. And then that became the basis of an uh, uh, act of uh, alleged lack of candor. There's a and the second interaction was a meeting in which I, my presence was demanded to speak to representatives of the uh, Inspector General's office to discuss an entirely different thing, which happened to be the revelation of the text messages between Pete Strzok and Lisa Page. First time I'd ever, um, first time I knew of their uh, the messages existence. Um, and well, then, why don't
0: explain what those messages were. Sure. So
1: it Pete Strzok uh, was one of the lead investigators on both the Hillary Clinton investigation and the Russia investigation, one of the most senior and accomplished counterintelligence investigators in the FBI. Uh, Lisa Page was a senior attorney who worked on my staff, um, and they engaged in a series of Text private text messages that were later released to the Congress and the Hill in which they talked about all kinds of things and including their shared distaste for then candidate Trump. And so I learned of that on this day in July. Um, At the end of that interaction, uh, I was asked questions about another matter. Uh, I felt they had the wrong impression about our discussion. So I contacted them uh, the next day or two days Two days after that to make sure they understood um, exactly what had happened with this authorized release of information uh, to the Wall Street Journal several months earlier. And that became essentially the second allegation of lack of candor, a statement that I corrected for them. So um, obviously, I have uh, deep disagreements with them over the facts surrounding those statements and the impact of those statements. And I. Um, I'm hoping that we get a chance to go through all of that in the civil suit.
0: Well, it's also difficult to argue that in a tweet. You know, the, the, it takes a lot of yeah. words to kind of get to that point. So it's clear to me that you think the president and by some extent a complicit Republican Party has damaged the FBI's ability to do its job. And these, there, there's always been the deep state sort of conspiracy theories, but they really seem to be getting some mainstream traction nowadays. Um, What, what do you think the FBI's role is in confronting those conspiracies and doing more to fight up, fight, fight against it?
1: Well, the FBI is in a tough position uh, to, to, it's hard for the Bureau to, to publicly fight back conspiracies. Right. And, and it's, um, In many ways, by engaging on that level, you give oxygen to the lie or the misrepresentation. Um, And when you are the investigative body, the primary investigative body at the federal level, you know, the Bureau is very reticent about the information they share with the public for many, many good reasons. And they basically don't get involved in kind of Twitter wars with the president or anyone else. So that was that is very frustrating to FBI people. The FBI is frequently in a position for just kind of sitting back and having to listen to these baseless, factually inaccurate, you know, allegations. Um, I am in, I think, now a unique position to be able to speak about some of those things. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book.
0: Well, it's interesting it, there are several times throughout <coughs> your career where you have argued against going out and explaining Procedure To the public, whether it's when the president accused the FBI of planting a quote unquote spy in his campaign, or even the decision by director, then director Comey to reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Yeah. There are a lot of times when you say like, we should just keep this in house. So how do you reconcile that?
1: Yeah, so very different things there, right? But the, the first the first thing that you brought up that came from a conversation that I had with Reince Priebus in which he was pushing me, and I think this is a really good example, he was pushing me to publicly deny the existence of the use of FISA in a particular investigation. That is something that the FBI does not do, and you can understand why. If the FBI starts saying, no, we didn't use FISA here— Then the next case that you ask us about, if we did use it, and then we say, oh, we can't talk about that, then you are, by process of elimination, people can find out about the use of an incredibly sensitive, highly classified investigative technique. So as a as a policy matter or practice, probably better description, we never confirm or deny the existence of FISA because it would be incredibly detrimental to our effective use of that tool. Um, and that's the engagement I had with Reince Priebus, who didn't see it that way, but nevertheless, that's where we were. But it's a good example of one of those times when the Bureau just can't speak about the matters it's investigating, if they are sensitive or classified or could... Um, you know, uh, wreak havoc on the investigation itself or the people around it.
0: So, I, I want to get back to the emails, but given this um, reluctance and and inability to talk about these things very publicly, do you think it's possible to rebuild the trust with the American people?
1: I absolutely do. I am completely optimistic for the future, um, and certainly for the future of the FBI. Primarily because the men and women of the FBI will continue doing their good work, no matter what the president or anyone else says about them. I have absolutely no doubt about that. Um, their job is getting harder day to day by day because of the relentless attacks upon the institution by the president and his supporters. That confidence that they depend upon, the confidence of the American people in the work that they do is being eroded. Um, the way to turn that around is to remove, discontinue the attacks. And, you know, that's just simply going to take new leadership, not just from the White House, um, but also on the Hill.
0: So let's go back to the email investigation. You actually did not agree with the decision to announce that the investigation had been reopened. That's correct. Do you still think that that was the right position to take? I do. I think that's an. I'm
1: more confident of that now in hindsight. Um, Now that you've been fired by the president (laughs) one. (laughs) won. No, no, the the issue came down to uh, a disagreement between our, were we obligated to tell Congress that we had reopened the investigation? And some people, me included, felt like we should know what we have before we notify anyone that we've, Resume the investigation. So what we had was a group of emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop um, We were struggling to get the legal authorization to actually open those emails up and determine are they new or are they just? Additional copies of the emails we've already seen that was the crucial decision point um, Or the factual point around that issue As we all know and I think Jim has been very clear about this. Jim felt that any activity on the case, we had to tell Congress immediately because his credibility and the credibility of the organization was at stake since he had indicated to Congress that he would update them if we took any additional steps. Many of us felt that we should know whether that material was in fact new and would require any investigation before we made a notification along those lines. What we now know, of course, in retrospect, and this is why it's easier to see that now, is it wasn't new. There was nothing on that machine um, that we hadn't seen before. So it didn't actually require additional investigation.
0: So throughout your career, it seems like every inflection point in history, you are there with a very politicized job. Um, one, wh- why don't you tell us about the interrogation efforts that you sure. led? Sure. H-I-G? HIG? The HIG, hey. right. The High
1: Value Detainee Interrogation Group, uh, which was one of the first uh, policy, it was one of the Obama administration's first forays into CT policy, counterterrorism okay. policy. Um, This was coming out of the Abu Ghraib scandals and the issues around the CIA's detention and interrogation program. program. Um, President Obama had been very clear during his campaign that he was going to kind of um, depart from those policies and kind of realign America's interrogation efforts with um, our constitutional values, and this was his effort to do that. Uh, so he pulled together a task force. They gave him a recommendation that the government should start a multi-agency entity charged with the responsibility of conducting the interrogations of high-value terrorist subjects. And, as they, and they also recommended that all of the government's work in this area should be restricted to those interrogation techniques that are elaborated in the Army Field Manual And those techniques that are used by federal law enforcement in constitution, constitutionally protected circumstances. So essentially, it took the use of enhanced the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques off the table forever. Um, A very bold and controversial move by the new administration. Um, The task force also recommended that the FBI essentially create this new multi-agency entity and be responsible for running it. And that was the uh, role that Director Muller gave to me. Um, it was a total political football. I had no idea when I i didn't really have a choice in taking the job because it came from Director Muller. I said, yes, sir, and uh, tried to figure out exactly what this thing was. I had nothing to do with the effort that got us to this responsibility. Um, and very quickly learned that Essentially, half of Congress was just violently opposed to it. The Republicans felt like they had to kind of draw a line in the sand here and push back on this in every way they could. And uh, the Democrats were very supportive of it. So it was caught in this uh, kind of political warfare.
0: Do you look back on that and think that was the beginning of the end for you with the Republicans in Congress?
1: That's a really good way to put it. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I didn't agree with their position. I recognized it for the political position that it was. It wasn't, they weren't really weighing in in a substantive way. They didn't really care about how effective interrogations and questioning sessions went. They were really, it all came down to Gitmo. Um, It all came down to how we were going to treat these folks as enemy combatants and thrown in the military brig for God knows When that ends, we still haven't figured that out. Um, Or would we treat them with the protections that American citizens are granted under the Constitution? Um, And so as a law enforcement officer, somebody who comes from that training, as a lawyer, that background, um, having had an incredibly productive experience interviewing people, interrogating people, the FBI doesn't really interrogate, we just call them interviews, I knew that we could do this effectively.
0: What's the difference between it? <laughs> you, you get, I think if you're the subject of the FBI, you think you're being interrogated. I could see how some people would see it that way. <laughs> um, I much prefer being on this side of the, the interviewing desk. I don't. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> but I, I understand. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So let's take a break from present-day politics for a second and go back to... Your application to the FBI. You were 27. You had already started a career in law. That's right. Why? Why change? Um, I got that question a lot back in those days from my from parents your parents, and yeah,
1: from other people. Um, so when I was in law school, uh, I spent the summer between my second and third years in law school as a volunteer intern in the Department of Justice. Uh, I went to D.C. for the summer. I'd gone to law school in, in St. Louis at the Washington University School of Law. Go Bears. <laughs> no Bears in the audience. Um, and so I spent the summer working on federal criminal cases, white collar cases, political corruption cases, things like that. Um, and I just became obsessed with not the work that I was doing, but the work of the agents that kind of built these case files, the conversations they they would have with people, the interviews, reading through uh, this document that we call an FD-302. That's where you uh, memorialize the results of an interview. And just reading one after another, I thought this is so much more fun than what I was doing in law school. So that's kind of where I came up with the idea to become an agent.
0: And one of the first um, big... Cases or efforts you're put into is investigating Russian organized crime, which seems very (laughs) coincidental (laughs) where you and where we ended up Um, how at the time the FBI had had a lot of success prosecuting the mafia. That's right. How was the mafia, the Italian mafia different from the Russian organized crime?
1: In many ways, I think the the Italian um, organized crime families, there are notoriously five in New York. So I was first assigned to the New York City field office. And so we had a lot of folks that were investigating the different aspects of the five families. And they had a lot to work with because that work had been going on really in earnest since the 1970s. So there was great intelligence on the families and how they were structured and who was in charge and that sort of thing. Um, the Russians were an entirely new problem set. And so we were just kind of let loose on Brighton beach and, um, uh, you know, on Queens Boulevard and different places in the city where large segments of the Russian population lived or Russian speaking population. And we were just kind of figuring it out from square one Um, as criminal groups. The Russians were, I think more creative and more fluid in their organization. They would group, together in different crews everybody knew everyone but it didn't have the groupings didn't have the same kind of hierarchical structure that the italians relied on they were also really adept at figuring out new and profitable criminal schemes often when they established them the italians would come in and take them over and the russians would go running and try to find something new so that was that was kind of how How
0: enterprising
1: yeah very creative
0: yeah So uh, you, due to this work, you did have some, um, you found some connections to the Trump organization during this time period. Or maybe I should say there are some Russian links to the Trump administration that were clear even back then.
1: There are notable Russian organized crime figures who we now know are linked
0: to the Trump organization. Do you think that is going to come out in uh the Mueller report? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna take that as a yes. I don't I, don't, I really don't know.
1: But we'll see, hopefully.
0: Uh <laughs> So from the Russian, from the work um, on Russia, 9-11 happens, you you go into, I'm I'm skipping some years here, but but then you go into a lot of counterterrorism work. That work you describe as um, almost being afraid of holidays because they're looming threat days, which I think is, uh, you know, most of us think of holidays as good times to get to the family. This was not the case with you.
1: No, uh, it's doom and gloom around every moment that other people see as like joyful celebrations of life. You know, you can't help but think about Christmas in terms of the Christmas threat or the Fourth of July. You know, you have, you know, a couple tens of thousands of people gathering on the National Mall. That's a massive security problem. Um, you build to those moments by doing these intensive reviews of all of your intelligence and your signals intelligence and you're looking at all of the subjects that you're investigating in those areas and trying to see if anyone has, you know, spoken to someone else and said anything about the 4th of July. You're constantly searching for these micro threads of connections that might make you think about the security and safety of large gatherings in a different way. It's a level of Vigilance that borders on paranoia, but it's just that's the work that um, that's the work that they do. And we are very lucky that there are so many talented and dedicated people, not just in the FBI, but throughout the intelligence community that are committed to that work. It's a hard life. It's very stressful. Um, people tend to take very personally their responsibility of preventing the next attack. Um, and so they take that. Uh, vigilance into every case and every issue because nobody wants to do a poor job on this case and then close it. And then three years later, that person does something horrible. I mean, then you feel like you could have stopped it Um, even when that's not fair. But, you know, it's hard not to personalize that 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 significant responsibility.
0: I've often wondered if counterterrorism experts go around To the mall or anything and just think you people don't even know. Oh, Uh, yeah, you do. I mean, that's horrifying. But how do you
1: (laughs) that's why we don't tell you,
0: (laughs) I think. Thank you. Uh, But do you how do you compartmentalize that for yourself and for your family?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's very challenging. You have to try to kind of continue to be a normal person in your non work life, um, and you can't connect those two things too closely. You don't, because so much of the work is sensitive or classified. You can't go home and you know sit down with your wife and be like, "You're not going to believe what happened at work today." <laughs> so she'd be like horrified and like running for the car or something if you did. Um, so you just have to develop kind of coping mechanisms to handle that like bifurcated aspect of your life. I think many people get burned out on doing that work after, you know, some period of time, which is totally understandable, but it's, uh, there's no question that it, it takes a toll on you and, and on the people around you, you know, my family, um, I can't tell you how many, how many vacations I've canceled, you know, showed up too late, left early, birthdays and holidays and all that sort of stuff missed. Um, and I am no different than anyone else that does that work. It's very tough on the people around us. Fortunately, they understand how important the work is and they support us and we wouldn't be able to do it without them.
0: So it was during this time that you first started interacting with then director Robert Mueller. That's right. Um, what was the first time that you met him? I'm not sure the absolute first time, but
1: I, I started to interact with him regularly on the um, 2006 US-UK airliner plot, which was, of course, that summer in which we discovered that uh, extremists in London were plotting to take down what we believed were US-bound airliners. Um, Internally, we referred to it as Operation Overt. I think that was the British name, and we just picked it up. Um, And so I was the head of the unit that was responsible for that case. And so in that position, I I found out, oh, you're going to have to brief the director twice a day. I think we did it at maybe 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. every day. And so stepping up to that responsibility and getting into that rhythm of sitting before Mueller, either in person or on a secure video teleconference link was just unbelievably challenging. He is the most thorough, down-in-the-weeds prosecutor-slash-investigator that you'll ever work with. He remembers everything you tell him, and he push, he'll push he push you on every single detail. He We would have these broad link charts that would show the connections between different subjects and things that were going on, and he would just start at one side and start to... Pepper you cross-examine you with questions about every single person every phone number every vehicle um, and that's That's how he manages a, a crisis event. And it's also just what he loves I mean he is at heart an investigator
0: the, the link charts. I didn't I thought this was just a TV thing, but you mean actually People's photos with like yarn that attaches. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't know that there's yarn. I want to uh. dispel that You know, they're printed out
0: special FBI office supply thing that
1: (laughs) you you have no idea Um, (laughs) No, they're just you know on big paper charts, but with photographs of the actual people Um, And and they'll be grouped into different kind of groupings like these are your subjects in the US And these are ones in London and these are ones in you know other places and then lines connect people um, and then you'll see on that line, there might be a phone number. So then, you know, the exact device, um, that is the, the one that's shared between those two people, that sort of thing. It's, they show relationships, which is, the that's the bread and butter of any large investigation, right? At which we talk about the use of the RICO statute in the book and this idea, it gave birth to this thing within the FBI that we call the enterprise theory of investigation. And that's like looking at your subjects, not just like, what did Audrey do, and do we have evidence of the stolen property at her house, but rather, who does Audrey know, and how do they know each other, and who do they take direction from, and how are all these people connected? It's an effort to get at the entirety of an organization rather than just kind of picking off people one after another.
0: First of all, my link chart would be very boring, but but I, I imagine in the special prosecutor's office, this giant board that has the... 20 plus russian russians that have been indicted the 6 trump associates do you think that's what is the ba- is the basis for this report i
1: i would guess there are many link charts in the office of the special counsel
0: uh, how yeah. uh, how are you how do you think about the looming i have to tell you i was horrified that it would come out today and i'd have to figure something out to ask you about it so i'm very glad it happened <laughs> i was worried about that myself okay, good. <laughs> but but how how are you thinking about the release of this report do you look forward to it
1: yeah i mean doesn't everybody i mean come on I, you know i I th- well, first of all, I, I do think that it should be. I know there are differences of opinion on this. I and, I and Director Mueller's responsibility is to hand over his report to the Attorney General, and then the Attorney General has a lot of decisions to make. I think it should be shared in its entirety with Congress, and I think it should be shared in the broadest and most robust sense possible with the American people. And I know that some folks di- differ on that, but this is a issue of such unique. Public interest. There is a long history, not just in those things that I was involved in, but a long history in the department and the FBI of sharing an otherwise, um, you know, sharing detail about an investigation, even some that don't result in criminal charges um, with the public in light of the intense public interest in that result. And I can't think of an example in which we have a more intense public interest. Um, so I, I do believe that it should be shared as broadly as possible with the American people. Uh,
0: this week, Nancy Pelosi, our Congresswoman here and the Speaker of the House, said impeaching the president, if if it was um, if it comes out in the report that he may have been involved in crimes, impeaching him would be a distraction and a waste of time. Basically, a lot of your book is about the proper checks and balances. Mm-hmm. Do you Do you think that that's an appropriate stance to take?
1: I I understand her concerns about how tumultuous and how potentially divisive that process could be. Um, But I think we're not quite there yet. I think the way that I prefer to think about this is that let's hear what the investigators have to say. And at that point, it becomes the responsibility of Congress to have their own hearings and maybe to bring those investigators forward to talk about their work and to expose the evidence in, in the most you know rich way possible um, with the American people. I don't think you get to an actual impeachment proceeding until there's maybe a very different sense of what the public support and the political support for that would be i think it's important to go through the process to allow people to actually see what we have hear from folks who were witnesses or involved look at the evidence and then let's test where that public and political support would be for a very political impeachment process i know that sounds kind of uh drawn out, but, um,
0: well, I guess I wouldn't, I I wouldn't
1: take it off the table, but I think we have some work to do before we're there.
0: Yeah. I would, I guess I would ask it another way. Should impeachment be that political, whether or not it is, do you think in the purest sense that if you commit a crime, you should be impeached?
1: Well, I don't think that's the way it's, it is constructed in the constitution. Um, you know, you can't be impeached until the politicians have voted both, uh, of course, um, in the Congress and in the Senate. And so by definition, it is a political process. I think that's the way the framers intended it. I think it's not unreasonable to allow public interest and to weigh in on that on that determination, of course, through the elected representatives. Um, it's not like a criminal proceeding where evidence is presented to an independent prosecutor. If it's sufficient, it goes forward to a judge or a jury. Um, so the framers had uh, a very different process in mind when they came up with impeachment.
0: Well, speaking of the Constitution, one thing that has been getting a lot of attention is um, your statement that Deputy Director, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein uh, suggested that the 25th Amendment could be used to remove the president from office. That's right. Um in the book, maybe, tell me if you disagree with this assessment, but he's portrayed as sort of freaking out all the time. <laughs> 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 your he, words, not wrong, <laughs> but your words. Uh, he he <laughs> is denied ever saying this. Why, I, I presume you would call that a lie, why do you think he's lying?
1: Well... I'm actually not aware that he has denied saying it. The His statement and the department's statement was that he was not in a position to invoke the 25th Amendment, which is absolutely true. He's not. He's not even part of that process. But um, uh, Mr. Rosenstein, I'm sorry, Stein, Mr. Rosenstein has not ever come out and said, no, I didn't say that. Not to my knowledge. If there is a statement I'm not aware of, then apologize for that. Um, it's really impossible to understand what he did say without thinking about the context. Um, we had over the course of that week after Jim was fired, a series of meetings, about four different meetings, starting with one just between the deputy attorney general and myself. And then the others had progressively more people involved. And they were very intense incredibly stressful. We were both trying to navigate a set of circumstances that neither of us had ever envisioned. We'd be stuck in the middle of Rod was reeling from his own experience of having drafted the memo, justifying the director's firing and then pushed back on how that memo would be used uh, publicly. So he, he was, and of course he only had about two weeks on the job at that point. So he was under incredible pressure, Um, he made a comment like the one he did about the 25th amendment or his comment about potentially, you know, being available to wear a wire into the white house. Um, neither thing I ever thought about seriously. They were not, first of all, I wouldn't have anything to do with the 25th amendment. So that kind of went right past me. Um, but I noted them in conversations I had with others about those meetings simply as a way of indicating how incredibly fraught, our interactions had become and what pressure the deputy attorney general was under.
0: He's allegedly going to leave his job as soon as the Mueller report is out. What, what will that do to the justice department? That's a
1: great question. Um, In my own view from my own experiences with him um, I think it's hard to really get your hands around some very conflicting things that he's been involved with over the last two years. Um, but I do give him credit for having first and most importantly appointed the special counsel and then served as some sort of level of protection or a buffer to the work that they're doing. Um, so if his departure comes before the special counsel team has finished their work i think that's concerning to the department and to all people who are interested in the special counsel's work Um, you know there is a new attorney general i think it is totally normal and expected for the new attorney general to bring on a new deputy so i think the department will um you know will take on the new the new deputy and and start working under the new team
0: Do you have a lot of faith in those teams? Because you portrayed the uh, Jeff Sessions, at least, as being sort of fixated to a point on political issues that were really distracting to what the FBI is trying to convey in the presidential briefing. Do you think that's gotten better? Or is that just a reality of the administration?
1: Hard for me to say, because I've never worked with Attorney General Barr, um, He has a long and distinguished record of service to the department. Um, And so I give him the benefit of the doubt and and hope that he will bring that same level of um, professionalism to his work now. I have no reason to believe he won't. Um, I don't know. I've heard the name of the new candidate for the role of deputy attorney general. I I don't know that person, so I couldn't really say. But I, you know, these, these are not new issues, right? Those political positions that change with each administration and then several times within an administration, there's always a a conversation about, you know, do you like the new person? Are they better than the last person? Are they too political? Um, So that's, that's kind of a, a very typical thing in the department, not something that the FBI participates in because we really are protected from politics. We have one political position, the director. And that person typically serves for 10 years, so it's pretty independent. Um, but the department is, by definition, a much more political place.
0: Do you, because of President Trump and his No, because influence? of
1: the number of politically confirmed...
0: Oh, the Justice Department That's right, is more political. Right. <clears throat> Do you think the FBI has become more political?
1: Uh, I don't. I don't. I think we are, unfortunately, I should say they, I keep saying we, am sorry about that. Um, They are involved in a number of issues that are highly political, and that's a challenge, Um, but that doesn't mean that the people working those issues are political. Um, It's one of the things that bothers me the most about the comments that people make about the FBI, the ways people react uh, to uh, to my book and the work that we did. Um, It is not a political place. People don't make decisions in the FBI based on their own personal preferences.
0: Um, It certainly seems that some of the leaks that have come out of the FBI have been pretty partisan. uh,
1: I mean, unauthorized disclosures of information always have some ulterior motive. Uh, It definitely seemed in that fall of 2016 that there was politics behind or political motive behind some of them. That's very different than saying that the investigators on the Hillary Clinton email case were deciding how to do their work based on their politics. I can tell you, as someone who supervised those investigators, that did not happen. And, of course, independent reviews of that work has concluded the same thing.
0: There's a, there's a question from the audience to this point. You often say that our intelligence agencies are apolitical, but would you admit that individuals and even the heads of these agencies have undertaken personally political activities through agency powers? <laughs>
1: um, I mean, certainly the heads of those agencies are political appointees, and so they bring a certain political a level of political activity and connection to the administration into that work. Um, It has not been my experience that the people who do the work in those agencies are also guided by politics, particularly in the intelligence area where producing information that is factually accurate um, and effective and, Relevant to decision-makers. I mean that is the lifeblood of any intelligence analyst or case officer um, There are I think a few Noteworthy departures from 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 that level of professionalism and independence I mean, I the, of course the probably the one that comes to mind first is the intelligence about Iraq uh, Iraq's use of chemical weapons, but those things stand out as as anomalies and mistakes in how the intelligence community does their work day after day.
0: Here's another one that I think is interesting. How do you think social media has influenced how we manage our security here in the U.S.? And are you concerned about the psychological effects of social media on our country's ability to discern potential threats, both personally and as a country?
1: Uh, social media has had an, Im- an immense impact on the work that we do, certainly in national security. Um, when you look at the use of social media for recruitment um, by terrorist organizations or communications or the dissemination of terrorist propaganda, even just in that area, it's completely changed the game of how we work and address counterterrorist issues. Um, on the counterintelligence side, you know, the, the use of social media and encrypted communications has really changed the way that we think about recruitment and influence operations and things of that nature. So there's no question. It's totally changed the environment that we work in. The broader question of how it's impacted our ability to have conversations about fact, I think, is in some ways even more troubling and harder to address. Um, there seem and i'm not an expert on this in any way but it seems that the the conversations that we have are more polarized now and people's reliance on their own sele- self-selected sources of information have driven us to a place where it is hard to have a productive discussion or argument about x when we can't agree what x even is um, and I think that as we go into a series of very important elections, um, kind of working with the tech industry to, be, to better police that activity has got to be a, a part of our approach.
0: Do you think that technologically speaking, the FBI is prepared for what's going to come in the future?
1: I think the FBI has a lot of work to do with the way that we think about technology, the way that we identify and acquire and deliver technological tools to our workforce has got to change. Um, When I was interviewed for the job of director by the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, and they asked me, what is the greatest threat that the FBI faces? That's the answer I gave them. I think they f- probably thought I would have said something more along the lines of a terrorist group or a violent crime issue or something, something like that. But as an institution, um, the FBI struggles with technology probably in the same way that most large institutions do. Um, but for us, the stakes are very different. They're much higher. Um, the profusion of like 5G technology and um, you know just data collection in and of itself has become so much more challenging now. There's, we have so much more access to such a wider variety and bigger volume of data that to be able to analyze and understand what we have and use it effectively in investigations has become incredibly challenging. So,
0: so you you probably you may know in San Francisco it's very hard to recruit. Engineers and technologists. So we have a a shortage of them for what we need Do you are you afraid that the negative publicity around the FBI? The doubt that the administration has tried to place in the American minds about the integrity of the FBI will make it harder to recruit the talent The FBI needs to continue to be ahead of terrorist groups? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just
1: for the FBI, but for government service in general um There is, you know, I can't overstate the value of a life in government service. Um, And if we can't continue to attract the best and brightest to those lives, then we are all less safe and less productive. Um, It's hard for us to recruit those same people that you're trying to recruit here. We're trying to get them into the Bureau or into the agency or, or some other place. Um, and you don't
0: give stock options,
1: no stock options, no high salaries, long hours, not much money. Uh, you can't talk about what you do. It's a great deal. Um, (laughs) Thanksgiving's terrible, (laughs) but, but you get to protect America. And so that's the brand that we rely on. And so people who would choose to make less and have more stress and no stock options simply because they want to be part of that mission. Like those are the people we really want. So when you're so it's tough to recruit them under the best circumstances when we just shut down the government for 34 days for no reason and people weren't getting paid. um, That makes it harder when an institution like the FBI is consistently attacked um, these false narratives about FBI corruption or FBI politicization um, just makes that job even harder. And it's um, it's very damaging, not just to the bureau, but to the country as a whole.
0: So, we're at the point now where there's time for one last question. Uh-oh. And um, as, a, an, as an expert interrogator yourself, I'm curious, if you had the president in a room, you could ask him anything and be guaranteed a complete and honest answer, what so We're would, in
1: fantasy land here, <laughs> right? This is like...
0: <clears throat> what would you want to ask him?
1: Oh, no, no, no. I mean, that's like... Wh- Choose your favorite child. I mean, it's one, of those, it's one of those questions you just can't answer. Well, you, you know? can t- choose two questions if you <laughs> like. Um, what do you really want to know from him? There are so many things I'd like to know from him. Some of them relevant, some of them just curiosities. But I think, you know, I would go right to the heart of the issue that most people are also thinking about, which is what gives with this special relationship with Russia? Why? Why do you believe them and not us? Do you think you know the answer to that? I don't know the answer to that. But I think it's something that needed to be investigated.
0: Well, our thanks to former FBI Deputy Director. Andrew McCabe. I'm Audrey Cooper, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned.